And what a privilege we have to open up God's word and be able to read it. Um, if you have a copy of the word of God, um, please open with me to the book of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament. And we're going to open and read in chapter 22. And with full anticipation that this is going to be transformational and that Jesus is going to speak to us today, let's listen and read along, um, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. <clears throat> and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, there are two swords. He said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And he said, or and he came to the place, and he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. 
But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thanks, Janelle. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And as we do, I was reminded that for a long time I had a framed picture on my desk that was taken when I was in college. And this picture, there were eight guys in it, me being one of them. And it was taken during a spring break conference uh, during time in college when I was involved in college ministry uh, there. And there were eight guys, and we were standing there together in a circle praying together. And I still, to this day, that was, I'm old, remember? That was 25 years ago. And to this day, I can remember and still even hear some of the voices and remember some of the prayers of what all eight of us were praying. And these were eight, we're, we're probably 20, 21, 22-year-old guys, have our, have our lives ahead of us. And we're praying that, that God would use us to impact the nations and impact the world for the glory of Christ. We're praying that we would live lives of disciples and disciple makers, that God would use us to magnify his name and advance his kingdom in the gospel. That God would use us, he would cause us to be men of his word, that we would, not, that we would live lives that were surrendered to him, that we wouldn't waver, that we continue to persevere and endure in our walks with Christ and love him as long as we live. And so we're, we're there standing, praying, literally just pouring our hearts out to the Lord and just envisioning what the Lord's going to do in our lives and through us for the next 50, 60, 70 years. So now as I look back on that picture taken 25 years ago of the eight guys in that picture, only two of us are still following Jesus. That, that slowly but surely, through the years, one after another, after another, after another, after another, began to slowly drift away and, and fall away and, and quit following Christ. So, so I wonder, like, has anybody ever been tempted to do that? Anybody here ever been tempted to do that? Anybody here just found following Jesus to be like really, really hard? Where you've grown weary and tired? You don't know how much more you can fight that temptation? You don't know how much more that you can try and resist that temptation? How much more you can resist the pleasures of this world? Or the pain that you're walking through, the the suffering that you're walking through, the sorrow you're walking through. You've got all these doubts and all these questions and you begin to wonder, is it really worth it? All that I've done for you and now this? Trying to resist and this looks so appealing though. Has anybody ever been tempted to just chunk it all, to just drift and 
And finally, just to say, that's it, I've, I've had enough. Well, within our passage this morning, we're going to see that's what two of Jesus' disciples do. That two of Jesus' 12 disciples, they're going to stumble, they're going to fall, and they're going to turn away from Jesus. One of them is going to fall completely and never be restored. Another one is going to fall, but not completely, and he's going to be restored. And as we see these pictures of, of these disciples falling and, and one being restored and one not being restored, then, then the reality is that that should serve as a warning for each and every one of us here this morning. A warning to remind us that we're not invincible, to a warning to remind us that we're not above and, and beyond this, a warning to remind us the truths of what Paul proclaims and, and is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, which, in, which encourages us to be careful and to take heed lest we fall, just like the disciples did here within this passage. So that's the topic. It's a pretty happy topic, isn't it? That's the topic that we're going to be looking at during our time together this morning. And as we look at this topic, I'm praying two things for us. The first thing I'm praying is, is this. I'm praying God would use this passage to warn those of us who feel like we're invincible, who hear things like this and hear stories about my six friends and think, those weak, sorry, that's never going to happen to me. Yeah, you think? This passage to warn people who are overconfident and who feel like they're invincible. At the same time, I'm praying that this passage would encourage those who have walked in here this morning and who are just barely hanging on to your faith, who maybe even had to crawl in here this morning and force themselves to come here this morning because this is the last place they want to be, and whose faith is withering, whose faith is drying up, and who are just trying to hold out any sense of resemblance of faith that they have to continue to plod along and following Jesus. If that's you this morning, I pray that the truths of what we're going to see this morning would bring you hope and confidence and surety as you seek to continue to follow Christ, not just today, but for the rest of your life. So here's, here's where we're headed. We're going to see, within this passage, we're going to see two sobering realities that are going to, that are going to kind of frame this picture of, of what, we, what we have to endure and what we have to face as we seek to continue to endure and hold fast in our faith in Christ in the world in which we live, and then a lot of these two sobering realities, we're going to see three urgent responses. In other words, three ways we should respond in a lot of these realities that we face as we seek to follow Christ in the world in which we live. So first sobering reality we're going to see is this. You see it on your hand out there. It's that Satan is seeking to sift us. Satan is seeking to sift us. This is what we see at the very beginning there in verse 31. If you remember what well, we saw last week, Jesus and his disciples, they're having a Passover meal together. They're reclining at the table together. Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. And so verse 31 then picks up where we left off last week. Jesus and his disciples are still at this table together. They're still celebrating and having this Passover meal together. And this is the conversation then that they're having as they're enjoying this meal together. We see it there in verse 31. 
Jesus says, Simon, Simon. So Simon is the Hebrew name of, of Peter here. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The most important words in verse 31 are the words you. You might want to underline or, or circle the words you there in verse 31. Those yous are plural, not singular. And so Jesus is addressing Peter here, but he's specifically referring to all of the disciples. And so, he, so he's saying to Peter that Satan demanded to have you, meaning like a good Oklahoman, y'all, all, all y'all disciples. And, and Satan demanded to sift y'all, all y'all disciples. And so it's just not he wants to sift Peter, he wants to sift all 12 of the disciples, which then begs this question, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that Satan wants to sift them like wheat? Well, back in the day, you put this husk of wheat into this strainer, this sieve, and, and shake it like that in order to separate the dead chaff from the kernel of wheat that was there. And so there is this violent shaking that would occur in order to make that separation uh, between the dead chaff and the, and the kernel of, of wheat there. And so what Jesus is saying, he's using this agricultural picture here in order to communicate to his disciples and to tell them, guess what? That's what Satan wants to do to you guys. He wants to take you, each and every one of you, and sift you. He wants to violently shake you. He wants to rattle you. And he wants to do that with persecution and opposition and and temptation, and pleasure, and, and all of those things. He wants to shake you. He wants to rattle you. He wants to shift you. And look at verse 32. He explains why Satan wants to do this, or he explains what, what Satan's aim is, or what Satan's goal is in shaking and sifting the disciples. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Again, do you see the U's there in verse 32? These U's are different from the U's in verse 31. The U's in verse 31 are plural, whereas the U's in verse 32 are singular. Meaning in verse 32, he's specifically referring to Simon, or he's specifically referring to Peter. That Satan wants to sift all y'all disciples, but Jesus is specifically praying for Simon here. And he's specifically praying that Simon's faith would not fail when he's sifted by Satan. But the point I want you to see here is, is what Satan's aim is in sifting. What Satan's goal is in shaking the disciples and in shaking us. His goal in sifting us, his goal in shaking us is to destroy our faith. That, that's, what, that's his ultimate goal. That's what he's after. His, he's after, he's sifting, he's shaking to cause our faith to fail. That word fail means to disappear. It means to die out. It means to, to, to give out. It means to be extinguished. And so that's what Satan's waking up every morning to do. He's waking up every morning on a mission for the, extent, for the, for the specific purpose of going after you. You have a target on your back. And his goal is to try and destroy your faith and make your faith to fail and cause your faith to die out and to be extinguished. 
And that's what he did to six of my friends. It's exactly what he did to six of my friends. And that's exactly what he's trying to do to you. And that's exactly what he's trying to do to me. Look then at verse 33 there. at how Peter responds. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In other words, Peter is saying, Lord, you're crazy. That, that's never going to happen to me. Like, I, my face's never going to fail. Like, I'm never going to deny you. I'm going to go with you all the way to my death. It's never going to happen to me. I'm invincible. And look what, Peter, what Jesus says, excuse me, in verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So, so that's the first reality I want us to catch and to be mindful of. And to remember, the first reality is that you have a target on your back and that you have an enemy whose, whose goal every single day is to quench your faith just a little more and 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 more until it's completely dead and died out and your faith has failed and you don't have it anymore and you deny Christ and quit walking with him. That's, that's the first reality. Second reality then to be mindful of is this. It's that the world is seeking to oppose us. The world is seeking to oppose us. See this next. Look at verse 35. Luke writes, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So here's the picture of what's going on here. If you remember, all the way back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission in Galilee. And do you remember the specific instructions that he gave them when he sent them out on this mission? He told them explicitly, don't take a money bag, don't take a knapsack, and don't take sandals. Well, when we fast forward 12, 13 chapters, I'm not very good at math, so you figure that out. He fast forwards to Luke chapter 22 here, and now what is he telling them to do? He's telling them the exact opposite of what he had told them all the way back in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, don't take a money bag, don't take a knapsack, don't take sandals. Luke chapter 22, make sure you take a money bag and make sure you take a, a knapsack. So what in the world is, is going on there? Well, if you remember all the way back in Luke chapter 10, the reason that he told them not to take a money bag, a knapsack, and all those things is because generally speaking, they were going to be well-received. They were going to be accepted. People were going to receive them and, and accept the message of the kingdom that they were going to go out and proclaim. And those that received them in their message then, they would take care of them. They would provide for the disciples. Luke chapter 22, they're going to go out and nobody's going to receive them. They're not going to be received or accepted by anybody. Instead, when they go out now, things have changed. They're going to be rejected. They're going to be opposed. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be ostracized. And so they need to make sure they take a money back. And they need to take, make sure they take a knapsack in order to provide for themselves and take care of themselves while they're out on mission. But that's not the only thing he tells them to take, is it? We were talking about this this week as a family. This is, I think, Jacob's favorite verse in all the Bible. But he tells them to take a sword. 
You know, and for a 12-year-old, you're like, that's awesome. Like, yeah, now, now, we're, now we're talking. And so he tells them to bring a sword. He tells them to sell their cloak so they can have enough money. Their cloak is their outer garment so they can have enough money to buy a sword. And a lot of commentators, will, they'll saw this sword's metaphorical, and Jesus isn't talking about figure, he's using figurative language here, and it doesn't mean this literally and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, he is. Like, if the cloak is literal, then the sword must be literal. Like, you can't, can't, have, it, you can't have it both ways. He's telling him to bring a sword, which indicates what? Yeah, this is how bad things are about to get. This is how much you're going to be rejected. This is how dangerous it's going to be. This is how much opposition you're going to face. Take a money bag, take a knapsack, but by golly, sell your coat so you can take a sword too. And this sword isn't like violent fighting crusades and take everybody out who doesn't receive your message. But this sword, I believe, I could be wrong here, but I believe is defense, protection. Because of how deadly and dangerous things are about to get. But in verse 37, Jesus explains why that is. He explains why they're going to be rejected and opposed. Look at verse 37. He says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 here. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what Jesus is doing here is explaining why the disciples are going to face that sort of opposition and rejection and response from those that they go out and share the message of the kingdom with. The reason that's the case is because of what's stated there in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that he quotes there in Luke uh, 22, 37. He's saying this, this verse that he was numbered with the transgressors, that he's saying that this verse is a reference to him. It's a reference to Jesus. He's saying that he's the one who's going to be numbered with the transgressors. And specifically, this word transgressors, within context, has the idea of with the criminals, those who have transgressed the law, those who have broken the law. In other words, Jesus is going to be viewed as and treated as a criminal. In other words, people are going to despise him. People are going to ridicule him. People are going to hate him and reject him and treat him like a, a criminal. And his whole point, though, in bringing this up is to communicate to the disciples and show the disciples that if that's how they're going to treat him, then that's exactly how they're going to treat those who follow him as well. They both go together. And that makes sense, right? If, if the world rejects, opposes, ridicules, despises, and then ultimately kills Jesus, then the world's going to ridicule, despise, reject, oppose, and, and kill many of those who seek to follow that same Jesus as well. And that's just not true of the disciples. That's just not true of Jesus. It's, it's true for all of those, including us who seek to follow Jesus as well. So two realities, right? Keep those in mind. We're going somewhere with all this. Those are two sobering realities. You, if you're a Christian, 
talking to you, if you have, a, you have a target on your back, you have an enemy that is out to destroy your faith, to cause your faith to fail, whatever faith you have right now, he wants to extinguish it and cause it to die where you don't have any faith anymore and you walk away from Jesus. And you have a world who opposed Jesus, rejected Jesus, killed Jesus, and they're going to do the same thing to you. Not everybody's going to die, but opposition, rejection, all those things. Does that make sense? Those are the realities of the world in which we live in. You go to sleep tonight, you wake up in the morning, that's the reality of the world that you're waking up to. It's important. Question then is this, how do we respond to that? That's true, that's the reality of the world we wake up to every morning, then how should we wake up? <laughs> how should we respond to those two realities? Well, that's what he's going to show us in the rest of this passage. He's going to show us three, what I would just call urgent responses to these sobering realities that we just looked at. And the first urgent response is this. You see it on your, your hand out there. We must labor intently in persistent prayer. We must labor intently in persistent prayer. So what we see, look at verse 39 there. Luke writes this. And he came out, talking about Jesus there, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from there about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here's the picture that we have. Jesus and his disciples had just finished this Passover meal. And so as soon as they finish this Passover meal, they leave Jerusalem and they go to the Mount of Olives where they've been staying the night each night during this last week um, of Jesus' life. And when they get there, the first thing that Jesus tells them to do is to pray. And not just to pray, he tells them what to pray. He tells them to pray that they don't enter into temptation. So put all this together, right, within context. What Jesus tells them to do right here makes sense, right? Especially in light of everything we've just seen up to this point. Satan is about to come and violently shake them. Satan is about to come and sift them. Satan is about to come and try and make their faith fail and try and destroy their faith. And the world is about to oppose them and the world is about to reject them when this group of Jewish leaders come in and arrest Jesus. So then in light of what's about to come, the sifting, this opposition, in light of all that, Jesus knows the one and only hope they have for, for, for enduring and and surviving the sifting in this opposition with their faith still intact, the one and only hope they have is if they pray. You don't pray, forget it. You don't stand a chance. Like Jesus knows we're going to see this in just a minute. This can be really good. But we're going to see this in just a minute. Like he knows they don't have the strength. They don't have the resolve 
in and of themselves to withstand the sifting, the shaking that's about to happen. They, 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 don't, they don't have it in and of themselves. Instead, the only way they're going to be able to get through that with an ounce of faith remaining is if they pray and if God supernaturally empowers them with the strength they need to endure and persevere the sifting and opposition that they're, that they're about to face here. And he specifically tells them, right, what, what to pray for. He tells them, pray that you don't enter into temptation. And the specific temptation that he's referring to here is the temptation to deny Jesus. The temptation to walk, walk away from Jesus. The temptation to have your faith fail and forsake Jesus. And because of that, you guys got to pray ahead of time. You got to pray ahead of time. So that when that time comes, those temptations, they're not even on your radar. They're not even a temptation. Because God is strengthening you to endure and persevere in the midst of that. So then how do the disciples respond? Well, we saw it there, didn't we? Instead of falling on their knees in prayer, they fall asleep. But here's the point I want to see. Do you, do you notice here why they fall asleep? I've heard this preached so many times and talked about so many times that those lazy disciples, they're just lazy and falling asleep and instead of praying. Did you notice why they fall asleep? Look at verse 45. They fell asleep because of sorrow. You know what that means? They literally cried themselves to sleep. They were over, so overwhelmed and overcome by sorrow and grief and light of what Jesus had just told them about what's about to come. They just wept and kept weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping until they were emotionally drained and they fell asleep. You ever fallen? You ever cried yourself to sleep at night? So what happened to the disciples here. And so you would expect at this point, right? These guys cried themselves to sleep. And so you would expect that Jesus' response might be just a little bit of a compassion. Like, oh, my God. guys, it's going to be okay. Like, it's okay. Like, don't cry. Like, I'm going to be raised from the dead again. And you will too eventually. You know, it's going to be okay. And. And maybe sympathize with them a little bit. Like, man, that, yeah, that would have been a lot of, that would have been tough news to really receive. And I can understand just why they would have been so sorrowful and grieving and cry themselves to sleep. And I get it. So they get a pass for not praying. He didn't say that to them at all. And said, even though they've cried themselves to sleep, the gravity and the seriousness and the danger and the threat of what awaits them is so severe that Jesus tells them that it's more important to pray right now than to cry yourself to sleep right now. That, that's how much value 
Jesus places on prayer and the role that prayer plays in preparing us to be able to withstand the sifting and the opposition that Satan sends our way and, and, and how he seeks to destroy our faith. And this is huge. A Christian who doesn't consistently and regularly pray is setting themselves up for their faith to be destroyed. If you go around and ask people and hear testimonies of people who've drifted away and who've fallen away, if you go and ask those six buddies of mine from college, what left first? What went first in their walk with Christ? For every last one of them, you know what went first? You know what left first? You want to know what they quit doing first? It wasn't just one day they woke up and said, I'm not going to, I don't believe this anymore. I'm not going to follow him anymore. I'm going to live like this now. Instead, it was a slow drip. And do you know what the first drip was? They quit spending time in the Word and prayer. Every last one of them. If you really believe that when you wake up in the morning, the reality in which you're born, that you wake up into, is that there's an enemy that has been staying up all night trying to figure out a way to just destroy your faith then wouldn't you get out of bed a little bit earlier than you do now just to fall on your knees and to pray that you wouldn't enter in temptation and pray that God would give you the power and the strength you need to endure all the sifting and all the shaking that that enemy is going to put, put you through that day. How in the world can we just wake up, roll out of bed, and just run into our day? Like you don't stand a chance. And I won't stand a chance. Like, we gotta, we got to pray. And that's what we see Jesus doing here, right? He's tired. He's exhausted. He's sad. Just like the disciples here, but instead of sleeping, what, what, what's he doing? Like, he's praying. He's praying like, I've, I've never seen anybody pray here. Like, he's praying with intensity. He's, he's in agony is the word that Luke uses. He's in agony praying. He's praying, and he's in so much agony, he's praying so intently that he's sweating so much that it, that it looks like drops of blood are falling from his face. That, that's not literal here, that like literally bleeding, but it's like he's, it's like he's bleeding. Use the word like there. It's like he's bleeding and, and just bleeding, just drops of blood just falling from him. Just, it's how much he's sweating, sweating here. And look what he's praying in verse 42. He's praying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's really important here to understand what Jesus is, is, is praying. He, he's, he's not praying this cup here is not a reference to the physical suffering, the physical pain, and even the death, the physical death that he's about to experience 
on the cross. That, that's, that's not the cup that he's referring to here. That's not the cup that he's saying, Father, remove that cup. He's not asking the Father to remove the physical suffering and the flogging and the pain and, and, and even, even the death here. He, he's, not, he's not asking the Father to remove any of those things. That's not what this cup that he's praying the Father to remove, that's not what it's a reference to. Instead, you want to know what it's a reference to? The cup here is a reference to the wrath of God. This cup is a reference to God's wrath and God's judgment against sin that God is going to, here it comes, pour out upon Jesus on the cross. That God has a cup of wrath and judgment that's filled to the brim. That he's about to pour out on Jesus. And the the question that we need to ask ourselves is why? What did Jesus do to deserve that? And the answer is nothing. He didn't do anything to deserve the cup of God's wrath that God the Father is set to pour out upon him. But do do you know why the Father is going to pour out this cup of wrath upon Jesus, this cup of judgment upon Jesus? It's because of you. And it's because of me. You see, you and I have sinned and rebelled against the infinitely holy God of the universe. And the punishment that we deserve for that sin then is God's wrath, God's judgment against sin, God's condemnation against sin. And that's why Jesus came. That Jesus came and he substituted himself on the cross and God poured out the full cup of his wrath and judgment upon Jesus in our place, in the place of those who have placed and trusted in Jesus by faith. God has poured out the full cup of his wrath and judgment upon upon him. And so the reality of that means, what that means is, is this. There's a cup, and that cup is full of God's judgment and God's wrath. And the only question then is, Who is God going to pour that cup out on? God is either going to pour that cup out on you because of your sin and rebellion against Jesus, or he's going to pour that cup out on Jesus. And the only way that he will stop from pouring out that cup on you is by placing your hope and your trust and your faith and believing that Jesus is your only hope to be able to be rescued from this cup of judgment that God is going to pour out, and believing that Jesus stood in your place and received it as your substitute in your place, and that he and he alone is your only hope for doing that and escaping that cup being poured out upon you. So if you're here this morning, if you've never done that, I encourage you to like to do that like right now. So that's the, that's the contrast. Just see the contrast, though, within these verses, right? Sifting is coming. Opposition is coming. How does Jesus respond? He responds by praying. And as he prays, what happens? An angel comes and strengthens him. As a result, when the sifting occurs, Jesus is able to endure it and persevere in the midst of it and not lose faith. The disciples, on the other hand, they're sleeping. They're not praying And because they're not praying, they're not strengthened. And because they're not strengthened, when the time of sifting comes, their faith fails. 
We've got to pray. Secondly, second way we should respond. We'll go really quick on these next two. Uh, We should respond to the reality of Satan's sifting. Number two, we must be careful of becoming overconfident and think that we would never fail. Look at verse 47 here. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What this is, is is the sifting. The sifting has started. The opposition has started. Satan has started to shake and sift Jesus and his disciples. Judas knew exactly where where Jesus and his disciples were going to be. Knew they were going to be on the Mount of Olives, so the crowd wasn't going to be around them. So when the crowd sees they, them arrest Jesus, the crowd isn't going to revolt. So Jesus, Judas is like, okay, here's my chance to betray Jesus and hand him over to the Jewish leaders. Look then at what happens there in verse. And by the way, Peter here with the whole sword thing, he's doing a little bit more than self-defense and protection. And so he's rebuked. Okay, verse 54. Uh, then they seized him, meaning they arrested him, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. The high priest here is a reference to the chief leader of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the Jewish Sanhedrin in that day was like the supreme Jewish legal council or the supreme Jewish legal court, think supreme court um, in Jesus' day. And so they arrest Jesus, they bring him before the supreme court. Look then at what happens at verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked to Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, talking about Peter here, and wept bitterly. I don't know about you, but this is one of the saddest scenes in all of the Bible. Just hours earlier, right? Verse 33, 34. Peter's like, I'll follow you to my death. There's no way my faith's going to fail. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm never going to reject you or, or abandon you. And then just a few hours later, Satan comes, shakes him, sifts him, And before you know it, the one who was adamant that he would die for Jesus, he's cowering before a little bitty servant girl and denying that he even knows Jesus. And the reality of that should awaken every single one of us in this room, should warn every single one of us in this room who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Like, don't ever think this could never happen to you. Don't ever become so overconfident and self-confident that you think, I'm beyond that. 
I'm above that. Isn't that exactly what Peter thought? It's exactly what Peter thought. And it wasn't even a full day yet. And he's denying Jesus. He thought he was invincible. He thought nothing could ever touch him. Nothing could cause his faith ever to fail. My six friends thought they were invincible. That nothing could cause their faith to fail. You should have heard him pray. You should have heard the commitments and the resolve and the, the vows that they even made. Same thing with Peter here. Like the moment that we think we've arrived, the moment we think we're untouchable, the moment we think we're invincible and beyond that sin or, or this sin or whatever that might be, is the moment that we begin to set ourselves up for that sin and for falling and failing. So then leads to the third and final way we should respond to the fact that Satan is going to sift us. It's this. See it on your handout. We should take great comfort in knowing that Jesus is interceding for us and that he will keep us. This passage ends pretty sadly, right? This passage ends with Peter weeping bitterly, with his faith failing. But I want us to see something at the very beginning of this passage. Look at verse 32. Jesus says something at the very beginning of this passage that should encourage all of us and give us all hope and confidence as we think about waking up every morning to, to, to Satan seeking to sift our faith. And the hope and the encouragement that, that he gives us, it's found in verse 32 here. Look at what he says in verse 32, specifically to Simon, right? Verse 31, y'all are all going to be sifted. Verse 32, though, but Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Not only that, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, catch this. Don't put anything up. Catch that. If you're a true, genuine follower of Christ this morning, then that verse right there should give you great hope. That that verse right here should give you great confidence and assurance that, that your faith isn't going to fail when Satan comes to sift you. It's not going to ultimately fail when Satan comes to sift you. And the reason that you can be assured, the reason you can be confident that your faith, if you're a genuine, born-again follower of Jesus, that your faith won't fail ultimately, completely, when Satan comes to sift you, is because Jesus is praying for you and Jesus is interceding for you. It's what he tells Peter right there, right? In verse 32. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm interceding for you. And that's what he's doing. If you're a genuine born again follower of Christ, that's what Jesus is doing right now for you. He is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding for us. So then on one hand, think about it. On one hand, Satan is against us and doing everything in the world he can do to make our faith fail. On the other hand, Jesus is for us and interceding for us and doing and praying for us that our faith may not fail. So then guess who's going to come out on top? It's not, if you don't know the answer, it's not Satan. It's not his sifting. It's it's Jesus. Like, if Jesus is for you, 
if He is interceding for you that your faith won't fail, then your faith won't fail. Like if Jesus is interceding for you, then, then you, you, you may stumble, you, you, may, you may sin, you, 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 may, you, may, you might fail, you might, you might fall, just like Peter did, but you won't ultimately fail. You won't ultimately fall. Instead, just like Peter healed, you're, you'll turn back again. You'll weep bitterly over your sin. You'll repent over your sin. And just like Peter here, you'll turn back again. And the reason that you can be assured of that isn't because of your resolve, isn't because of your strength to withstand sin, isn't because of your strength to get up every morning to pray, isn't your, it's not because of your strength to keep your faith. Instead, the one and only reason that you can be sure that your faith won't fail forever is because Jesus is for you and he's interceding for you, that it won't fail. And because he's doing that, then you can be rest assured it's not going to. What that means then is this. If you're here this morning and your faith is feeling wobbly, if you're like just holding on by a thread, wondering can you keep on, keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. If you've grown weary and tired and discouraged and just weak in your faith and you're not for sure how much longer you can do this when it comes to following Jesus then take great comfort and great hope in knowing that Jesus is praying for you. And because he's praying for you, he's never going to let Satan destroy your faith and ruin you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this word that we've been reminded of. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the warnings, for the reminders that we have here to not be overly confident in ourselves, to be able to withstand the attacks and sifting of the enemy and of the evil one. But Lord, help us to find great confidence in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection and his current, present intercession for us. Lord, help us to find great confidence knowing that when we wake up in the morning, that Jesus is interceding for us and Jesus is keeping us. And so, Lord, help us to fight temptation. Help us to fight suffering. Help us to fight the pleasures of this world with the hope and the reality of who Jesus is and what he is doing for us right now. But let us do so with a sense of healthy warning, knowing, Lord, that we need to be cautious. We need to pray and we need to plead. And we need the strength and the encouragement that only you can provide in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.